our story this morning in chapter 36. And we are going to look at 36, 37, and 38. Don't be alarmed by that. 36 will take just a few moments as it's a very uh, historical kind of a chapter. We'll spend the bulk of our time in 37 and a little bit of time in 38. You know, as we go through the Bible, um, you know, within the scriptures, there are different kinds of literature. We are in Again, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is one of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. And in the book of Genesis, it is a historical document. So, you know, a lot of times we're used to New Testament books that are very instructive. The Gospels are historical, but they're rich because it's the life of Jesus. The, the epistles are very didactic, meaning they're very teaching-oriented. There's a lot of truth, a lot of principles. Like every verse, every few words has a principle in it. They're so rich to us. And sometimes going through these historical documents, or as we get to the middle part of the Old Testament, we're looking at what's called the wisdom and the poetic literature. Sometimes we struggle with that a little bit. You know, Psalms, Proverbs, pretty good. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, sometimes a challenge. We don't know what it all means. Uh, but we need to read it anyway because it's a part of God's record to us. And then we go through the prophets, which again is very historical, but it's also prophetic. It's prophetic of the time that they were living in, and that has a forward-looking prophetic effect on the, the day that we're living in. So the Bible is rich, and it is replete with truth and with God's heart for us. So we find ourselves this morning in, in the middle of a very historical passage and we've reached a place where we're, we're in another place of transition, where the story is now shifting from the person and the character of Isaac and then Jacob. And now we're shifting to the, to the youngest son of Jacob, or the next youngest son, uh, Joseph, his favored son. And we begin to transition into Joseph's life. And from chapter 37 through the end of the book, which is chapter 50, These next 13 or so chapters are all about the life of Joseph. So we sort of reach this last section of the book of Genesis this morning. So I'm going to read uh, to you, and you can read along with me, beginning in chapter 37, uh, concerning the life of uh, Joseph, and then we will come back and touch upon 36 and then go through this together. Now, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the genealogy of Jacob, Joseph being 17, and it's going to list um, some of his brothers there. Now, verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. 
And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his fathers kept the matter in mind. Lord, this is your word. This is your truth. Would you speak it to us this morning? Would you reveal it to us so that we may understand it? And would you apply it to our lives so that we may understand how we may live? And we pray this in our precious and our glorious Savior's name, our Lord Jesus. Amen. So in chapter 36, as we've been transitioning now, you know, Isaac had just died at the end of chapter 35. Uh, We now have the family of Esau and the genealogy of Esau listed here for us in chapter 36. In chapter 36, there's a, a phrase that is repeated here for us. So if you would look at chapter 36, verse 1, it says, Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. And then if you look down in verse 8, it says, So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 9, And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites. And then if you look down in verse 19, These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom. And these were their chiefs. And then if you look at the last verse of the chapter, verse 43, the last phrase, Esau was the father of the Edomites. So five times we are told Esau is Edom. So as Moses wrote this record for us, remember Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. He wanted to make sure that the readers knew that we knew for all posterity's sake Uh, That is, as is often the case in the scriptures, someone is referred to by a different name, or, or, and sometimes that name change reflects their identity. Remember, we just dealt with the fact that Jacob was renamed by the Lord to be called Israel. His name Jacob meant heel catcher, supplanter, sneaky thief. But the Lord looked at him and he said, you shall be called Israel. And Israel means governed by God. And it reflected the journey that he had been on with the Lord. And it meant that God was now ruling and reigning over his life. And he, he gave him a name that was not only a name, but it was also a title. And that title became the, the title of the area, the country we now see on the map that says Israel. And we know uh, as we go forward with uh, Jacob and Israel... As we read through scriptures, especially in the, the prophetic and, and some of the later historical literature, we'll see sometimes the name Jacob called out, and sometimes we'll see the name Israel called out. And often what happens as we go forward from this time and place in the book of Genesis, when we see the name Jacob called out, that's referring to his, his old nature. That's referring to, to Jacob was a man of the flesh. He was a man of deception. He was a man who wanted control and he wanted to do things his way. But as, uh, he, he's now called out as Israel. When you see the names where Israel is invoked as opposed to the name of Jacob, that's referring to this is God's covenant promise. This is God looking at a man and calling him a man who is governed by God. It reflects the change of his identity. So just as you read your Bible going forward, and sometimes you'll see Jacob, sometimes you'll see Israel, you'll know why. 
Also, in like manner, as we read through the genealogy, which we're not going to do this morning, I know you're disappointed, of Esau, we need to know that Esau and Edom are used interchangeably as we go through the scriptures in much the same way. Esau was the name of the head of the people that came from him, but Edom now refers to more the tribe of people who came from Esau. And when you see the name Edom used, especially in in the later prophets, it's of course referring to the descendants of Esau. So a little history lesson, a little interpretive lesson there from chapter 36. And for bonus points with somebody, I don't know who, if you want to do a study in chapter 36 of those people groups, you'll see later those people groups do show up. But again, often, just as is the case with the Ishmaelites, who came from the Ishmael, the son of uh, Abraham, and the handmaid of Sarah, that the Ishmaelites often became a thorn in the flesh, so to speak, of the people of Israel. So the Edomites often became people who were troublers of Israel. And it's interesting, again, two brothers, Esau and Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel, governed by God, and the, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel became the 12 tribes, and from the 12 tribes came, of course, the Messiah. From Esau came the people who were troublers of Israel. So things to be aware of. Now we move into chapter 37. We begin to have the, the life of Joseph sort of exposed to us and developed. Now at this point, as we enter uh, chapter 37, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. So you kind of get the sense here. Now remember, we've been going through where did the Lord tell uh, Jacob to take his family? He wanted them to take, take them back to the area of Bethel, stay away from Canaan, get out of that area. Canaan was a pagan land filled with uh, godless people, filled with idolatry and all of that. And remember at the beginning of chapter 35, as we looked last week, the Lord sort of brought this reformation into the life of Jacob, who is now called Israel. And as he brought that reformation and that revival into his life, he said, purge yourself of all the idols and your household. And so they went and they took all the idols and they went and they buried them. And then they turned and they cleansed themselves and they worshiped the Lord. And Lord was, the Lord was calling them back to himself and calling them to make the Lord big, to make the Lord important in their own lives. And so now we find ourselves here in uh, verse 1 that somehow they've sort of wandered back into the land of Canaan. And so we find here in verse 2, this is the history of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, so we're given that marker in his life, a very young man was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, uh, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, you might look at this, and the first thing that strikes us when we read that might be that Joseph was being a tattletale. Uh, Perhaps he was just sort of being a goody two-shoes and trying to endear himself to his father, but I think there's Uh, much more behind that that is of an honorable fashion in that Joseph, and here's one thing we're going to see of Joseph's life and character. Unlike his father, unlike his brothers, Joseph is a man of integrity. Joseph loves the Lord. That's going to become evident to us. Joseph 
is a man who cares about truth, who cares about what is right. And so as he goes back to tell his father of whatever it is that he saw his brothers doing, and we aren't given, of course, the detail, but whatever they were doing, we can sort of surmise, okay, they're, they're in Canaan, they're in the edge of the land of Canaan. And what do we tend to do when we're in uh, a place where we're surrounded by wicked people and evil and vile things? Sadly, we often sort of migrate in that direction, don't we? Now, let me, let me stop here and make a comment. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I said this to my kids when they were younger and they hated it, but now, of course, I hope they value it a little bit. Are you, is your tendency as a person to be more like a thermometer or a thermostat? What's the difference? Well, a thermometer just tells you the temperature. It just, it just acclimates to the surroundings. But a thermostat, when you go turn that thermostat on the wall, you're telling it to set the temperature. I want it hotter. I want it cooler. In other words, it's an influencer. It, it, it changes things. So are you a thermometer or a thermostat? Are you a person who tends to be influenced? Or are you, a, or are you an influencer? And it's not just learning about your personality, but hopefully learning about what does God want us to be like? I believe God, in spite of our personality, he wants us to be thermostats. He wants us to be a people who change the culture. He wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to be red hot for him. He wants us to be close to him. He wants us to be people who are passionate about him. And so we're making a difference because we believe in, in, our, in the Lord God, the, the one maker of heaven and earth, that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we believe there is only one God under heaven and earth. There is only one name by which we must be saved, and it is the name of Jesus. And so are we a thermometer or a thermostat? And I believe Jacob's brothers were probably more like thermometers. And so they had probably allowed themselves to get pulled into, let's just say, questionable practices. Perhaps they were doing things that their father would not have approved of. And so now um, Joseph brought back a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children. Bad idea if you're a parent to have a favorite child. Uh, But it seems that this was common in the family, wasn't it? Going back to um, Abraham, he had the two sons. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. But of course, Isaac was the child of promise. But then Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Esau was the favorite son of Isaac. And Jacob was the favorite son of his mother, Rebekah. And that caused a real rift within the family. And now... um, Jacob has his 12 sons, and with his sons, he had Joseph as his favorite, who was actually his 11th son, because uh, Joseph was the first son from the wife that he truly loved. Remember, Rachel was his mother. Remember, when he first went to find a wife from the family of Laban, that Laban was, of course, in Abraham's lineage. He was in Abraham's family. And, of course, he walked in. He saw the two girls, Leah and Rachel, and he fell in love with Rachel and bargained for her. And of course, when he got married, uh, his father-in-law Laban went in and deceived him, and he sent Leah in, and he slept with her that night on the wedding night, woke up the next morning and found out that he had been deceived, and then uh, began to have children, of course, by Leah. And we we read that story that God had pity, had compassion on Leah because she was unloved, so he opened her womb and closed the womb of Rachel. 
And then all of these children came to Jacob. And remember, we've talked about how Jacob had this idea of how he wanted things to be. I'm going to marry Rachel. I'm going to have a family. God's going to bless me. The Messiah is going to come through my lineage, the promise of God through that way. But that's not how it happened. And Leah came and gave him four sons right off the bat. Rachel had none. And then the handmaids went in. Rachel sent her handmaid in. Leah sent her handmaid in. And then finally, after 10 sons have been born and one daughter, you come to the place where there's finally, he gets a son by his beloved wife, Rachel, and it's Joseph. And Benjamin, we just found out last week, had just been born very, very recently. So Benjamin's younger than than Joseph. Joseph here is 17. Benjamin's just a wee lad. And now Joseph here, he's the favorite son. He's the, he, probably in, in Jacob's mind, Jacob is probably looking at him like his firstborn son because he is the first son that came to him through the wife that he loved the most dearly, Rachel. And so he loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a tunic of many colors. Now, people have wondered about this, this coat, this tunic. And everything I've been able to understand about this is that this, this tunic, this, this is a special coat and that someone who would have had a, a garment like this in a household would have been viewed as the heir to the master, the child of promise, the one who would take the birthright and the promise to lead the family forward after the father died. And again, remember, this upsets the apple cart because in this culture, the way it worked is the firstborn son and the, order, the pecking order of the family, there was a hierarchy. And so the oldest was always the one who would receive the birthright. Remember, that was the problem between Esau and Jacob. But remember, the Lord had divinely orchestrated and turned that around and in his ways. And as Esau was being born, Jacob had a hold of his heel. So clearly Esau came out first. But as Esau came out, many years later, we find that Esau despised his birthright and his father loved him. And God had actually told Rebekah while the children were in the womb that there are two nations within your womb and the older will serve the younger. God told it uh, prophetically to the parents. Rachel, of course, I mean, excuse me, Rebecca shared that with her husband, but it would seem that Isaac had difficulty accepting that. So years later, when the deception came, when Jacob went and took the birthright by deception and by force while Esau was out in the field, remember, they went in to take by force what God had promised to them. They went in to take by trickery that which God had said, it's already yours. And so now here we are seeing sort of the effects of that flowing down after all the years. And they saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of them. So now imagine you're the, you're the baby brother in the family. You've got 10 older brothers and they all hate you. They just despise you. They can't stand you. Because they know that dad loves you more than the rest of them. That, that he can do no wrong. He's the golden child. And so there's this family animosity. And we've noted this, haven't we, all throughout the history now of these families. That there, there always seems to be turmoil and family difficulty. And yet, these are the very people that God said, this is through whom my lineage shall come. This is how the nation of Israel shall be populated. These will be my chosen people. 
And yet this is one of the most dysfunctional families in the history of planet Earth. This whole family coming from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then it says uh, that they hated him and they could not speak peaceably to him. Imagine in your household, every interaction being this way. Hatred, vileness, looks, tone of voice, just terrible. So it would seem that, and I'm sort of reading between the lines a bit, that for 17 years, Joseph had probably been dealing with this. Now his father gives him this coat, this, this coat of many colors. And in a sense, this would have made Joseph the, fa- the, the manager of the family. So when Joseph comes <clears throat> out to see his brothers and he's wearing this coat, they're kind of looking up going, ah, here comes a favored child. He's going to go back and tell dad that we're up to no good again. And we can't do any right when he's around. I, I hate that kid. We got to do something about him. So he said to them, <clears throat> I have a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, verse 6, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were in the field binding sheaves. Now, if you're not familiar with this, they're out in the harvest, grain, barley, wheat, some kind of grain. And you know that the wheat grows up roughly four or so feet tall, something like that, maybe a little bit taller. And as they're harvesting that wheat with sickles, And the wheat falls to the ground. They bind it up into groups. And they just call them sheaves. And they do that so that as they're harvesting, they fall down. They bind them up so they can come by and collect them and put them on a cart and bring them in for the harvest. So there we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, correctly interpreting the dream... Shall you indeed reign over us? Is that what your dream means? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? See, they they despised that. They hated that. Even though they knew that that was their father's intention, his coat reminded them of that every time they saw him. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, this is a similar dream to the first one, but both dreams have the element that somehow Joseph was going to become the leader of the family, and the rest of the family would sort of become subservient to him. And we know from the New Testament that these dreams were absolutely true and they were significant. But not only that, we know as we go through this story, and if you've read this and you know anything of the story, then you know what's going to happen. You know that the time will come when they will indeed come before him. Now, we don't want to ruin the punchline. That's coming later. In fact, that's coming about 20 years after this point. So there's a lot of turmoil and difficulty that Joseph has to go through before these dreams that God gave him are become realized. But as he tells them of this other dream, this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him, and again, correctly interprets it. What is the dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? 
So the sun and the moon, father and mother, and the, uh, what did he say here? And the 11 stars, the, the other brothers. He says, you'll all bow down to me. Now, one might question the wisdom of jo- Joseph sharing these dreams with his family. Why would you do that? <laughs> you sort of know what kind of reaction you're going to get, right? But I think in God's divine providence, you know, we can second guess whether it was wise for him to share it or not. We know when we get to the point 20 years later in the story that this is going to become very significant because then he will remind them of this, not lording it over them, not in a bad way, not rubbing it in, but he will remind them that this, these two dreams are actually prophetic dreams that God gave him and they were foretelling of what was going to happen within the next 20 years to all of their lives. In essence, these dreams were actually dreams of grace. That God is telling them, you're going to go through something difficult, although they couldn't see that. Of course, it hadn't happened yet. But that I have a plan. And that Joseph is going to become a deliverer for them. In fact, as we enter these stories about Joseph, we need to understand something. We've talked about these things so far as we've been going through the book of Genesis. These things called types or figures. Joseph is going to be revealed as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ and the things that are lived out and portrayed in his life. So let's continue to move forward and to talk about these things. But with respect to this dream about the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to me, I'd like to direct your attention briefly to Revelation chapter 12, and I'll read it to you. You can turn there if you like. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great and fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child, capital C, as soon as it was born. She bore a male child, capital C, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child, capital C, was caught up to God and his throne. You see, in Revelation chapter 12, we are in the time of the tribulation. And God calls this scripture that we're reading today forward in time, prophetically. Now, there's a near and a far fulfillment. That's often the case of Old Testament prophecy. The near fulfillment was what happens in the next 20 years in the lives of Joseph and his family. But the far fulfillment is going to be during the time of the tribulation. And this, this imagery is given to us. And what this imagery is telling us, and we, we are able to correctly understand it because of the understanding of the Old Testament occasion where it occurred, that this woman is referred to in Revelation chapter 12 as Israel. This woman clothed with the sun and with the moon. So here, who are the sun and the moon? It's, it's Jacob and, and his wife or wives as they gave birth to the 12 stars or the 12 tribes of Israel through these 12 sons. And uh, and under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. There's the family. And being with child, lowercase c, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. 
So she gave birth to these 12 stars. She gave birth, in essence, to the nation of Israel because these 12 sons, even though there were four mothers, these 12 sons became the lineage of Israel. And then he paints the picture here in verse 3. Another sign appeared, the fiery dragon. And as we went through this, of course, this about a year ago now, we were going through that passage of Scripture. And we looked at it, and the fiery red dragon was Satan. And this, this tells us here in Revelation 12, 3, 4, and 5 of how Satan has had it out for the descendant of Israel who would be ultimately the Messiah. And that's why we see the word child with a capital C the child of promise. And so his tail drew a third of the stars from heaven. Verse 4, this is referring to the time in eternity past when Satan fell before God. And as he fell, and he sort of got the idea that his tail comes and it takes a, a portion of the stars, which seems to be referring to uh, the angelic host. And we know that Satan has evil angels who follow him. So it would seem that a third of heaven followed Satan in the great rebellion against God. And we looked at that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Tell us the, the story and the background of what happened during Satan's fall. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. As we look at the what we call the scarlet thread of redemption that runs through Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament we see allusions and pointers to the one who would be the Messiah. And yet we see over and over Satan trying to come in and somehow thwart the bloodline that would bring forth the Messiah one day. When we read the genealogies that are found in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, it points back to both Joseph's side of the lineage and Mary's side of the lineage. And there's even this thing called the blood curse of Jeconiah, where this crazy thing happened in the Old Testament, where through Jeconiah, the, um, the Messiah would come, but Satan had this elaborate scheme where he tried to devour the child and to prevent the Messiah from coming forth. And so this story here in, Re in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, so she bore a male child, capital C, who was to rule all nations. The Messiah came forth from Israel with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. So Jesus came right there in one verse. Jesus came to the earth, he lived his life for 30-some years on the earth. And at the end of the time when he gave his life for the sins of the world, after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, uh, the end of the Gospel of Luke, the end of all the Gospels, really, and the beginning of the book of Acts. And then he was ascended into heaven. He went up to be uh, with God on his throne in heaven. And now he'll come back. He'll come back first and to take his church to be home with him. He won't set his foot on the earth. He'll appear in the heavens and the, the church will be raptured to his side. The tribulation will be ushered in. And as the tribulation comes and this seven years of utter turmoil and, and chaos comes upon the earth, then he will come back at the end of that time, which is referred to as the second coming of Christ. All of that is caught up here in this imagery of this dream that God gives Joseph. But first, we're going to work forward to the near fulfillment of that dream. Verse 11, and his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed the father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said, please go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring, them, bring back word to me. 
So you can see here, Joseph is playing that special role, wearing that coat, being the heir, being the favorite of the father, father sending him out as a messenger. Your brothers are out working, and in reality, Joseph should have been out working alongside his brothers, but instead he's the, the manager. He's the, the errand boy. And so dad sends him out and says, go out there and, and find out what's happening. Now, again, we could question the wisdom of the father sending out the son by himself to an area called Shechem. Remember earlier, we looked at Shechem, and Shechem really was filled with, with thieves and robbers. And so there was great risk to send a young man wearing a coat like this, which in all of society would have telegraphed that he was a wealthy man as well as a man of authority, to send him on his own for several days' journey by himself out through the desert. So please go. And he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. But God delivered him. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. So he got lost. He's headed in the general direction. Now he gets to a place, and he's like, I don't know where I am. And he finds this man, and the man says, what are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are, feeding their flocks. And he says, oh, yeah, they departed from here. They were here, but they went up to Dothan, so another 13 miles up the road. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them in Dothan. So they, they saw him afar off, even before he came near, and they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, there's the dreamer. Here he comes. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams then. You see, they were obviously bitter with envy and hatred toward their brother, but Reuben heard it. Remember, Reuben is the oldest. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. That, and he was saying this, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring, them, bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. They stripped him of his favoritism. They stripped him of his authority. They stripped him of potentially having the birthright. Um, and they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. We believe that this was a cistern that was dried up or that maybe had cracked and no longer held water. So this pit would have been more like a hole in the ground, but inside the ground it would have been hollowed out. So it wasn't just a, a hole. It was, it was a cistern. And so they throw him into the bottom of this cistern, into the bottom of this well, and the pit was empty. There was no water. And they sat down to eat a meal. So he's in the ground there yelling and carrying on. And, hey, how could you do this to me? And they're going, yeah, let's, let's have some steak. Let's have some bread. Get some potatoes. Let's enjoy ourselves. So they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and they looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites. Uh-oh. Coming down from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Now, I want you to note here, and if you write in your Bible, and I encourage this highly, write down there beside verse 25, the providence of God. Because this train of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt becomes God's vehicle 
to deliver Joseph to Egypt so that he can fulfill those two dreams. So Judah said to his brothers, now Judah, right, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is the one through whom the Messiah, the lineage of the Messiah will come. The Lord Jesus Christ will come from Judah. Remember that. Because when we get into the next chapter, it's not so good for Judah. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Hey, shouldn't we get something out of this? We should certainly get something for the head of our brother. Why, why kill him? It's just a waste. Let's, let's make a little profit here, a little money. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midian, the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. 20 shekels of silver, the price of a life. Now in Acts chapter 7, we find that uh, the story coming to us through Stephen tells us a little bit more information, a little bit more background here, and it actually gives us a little bit of a summary of Joseph's life. So in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, we read these words. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Now I want to point out something there. Notice how Stephen refers to them, and the patriarchs. Now the patriarchs were regarded in Jewish history as these were the men that God used to establish our, our country, our nation. And what are we reading so far about the patriarchs? It's a questionable group of people, right? These are not people of high degree. These are not exactly the people you would say, I want these people on my advisory board, right? They, this, they're a troubled group of men. So, <laughs> what's that? Well, yeah, well many of them, yes. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Acts 7, 9, but God was with him. Wow. And delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. So he's summarizing summarizing what happened in Joseph's life and how God took care of him. Excuse me. Now a famine And great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. So there's God's providence in that he's sort of focusing things down on Egypt. But Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, and he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, verse 13, Acts 7, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. That was when the second dream was fulfilled. Now, as we're, we're looking at this here, just to point out something, our Lord Jesus was also betrayed for pieces of silver, wasn't he? So there's one of the ways in which Joseph is a type or a forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ, except, of course, Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. So back to Genesis 37 in our story, verse 29, then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, so he was apparently gone when this whole thing happened. And he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers, and he said, the lad is no more, and I. You see, he was the oldest brother. He viewed himself as being responsible. He says, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. So they're now 
See the sinister and the scheming? I mean, it's just replete in this family. And so they take his coat and they shred it and they, they kill this goat and they just douse it with blood. And then we're like, we'll just send this to dad and tell him he was mauled by some wild beast. And so they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father. So they didn't even take it themselves. It would seem they sent it by a messenger and then they followed later. And they said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Like, oh, we're all innocent here. Oh, look at this. Kind of look, Dad, is this the coat you gave Joseph? And he recognized it. Now think about this. Think about the deception. Think about what you're doing to the heart of a parent. And he recognized it and he said, it is my son's tunic. And he immediately jumped to the conclusion that they hoped he would. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Can you see? Can you hear? Can you feel the anguish of this father over losing his son, not just a son, his favorite son, the son he loved. You know, in the scriptures, we have this thing called the principle of sowing and reaping. Years earlier, Jacob had deceived his father Isaac by using goat skin to take by force and trickery that which God had promised, the birthright and the blessing. And now his sons, whether knowingly or unknowingly, use the same goat deception. Remember what he did? He and his mother, Rebecca, they killed a goat and they they made the stew and he put the fur on his hands and on the back of his neck and went in and deceived his father and took the birthright and that's when he left home. And here his sons are taking a goat, killing it, using the blood, putting it on the tunic, sending it back to deceive the father. And as far as they're concerned, they're rid of their problem. Yeah, there was a little collateral damage. Their father's heart is broken. But finally, they've rid themselves of that, that, that boy, the dreamer, the one who was a constant thorn in their flesh as far as they were concerned. And we find this epilogue here in verse 36. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of, of the guard. So if you wrote up by verse 25 that that train of Ishmaelites was the providence of God, write again by verse 36, again, a statement of divine providence because God is directly, divinely orchestrating and making it so that Joseph, through that train of Ishmaelites, those evil people taking him down and selling him into slavery to Egypt, they were the transportation mechanism But now as he gets there, you see God's hand in his life because now he sends them into Potiphar's house, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. Very high-ranking official in the government of the Pharaoh. And that will come back to us in later chapters as God uses it to divinely divinely orchestrate things. Now we have uh, chapter 38. We come to this sort of strangely placed chapter in the midst of Joseph's life, and we go off for just a moment, and we look at Judah, again, Judah being the one, the line of the tribe of Judah, through whom 
the Messiah would come. And we have a little snapshot into his life. And it came to pass in uh, 38.1 that at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So Judah is already departing because he should not have taken a wife from among the Canaanites. He should have taken a wife from, from somewhere within his father or his grandfather's family. So he's already off course. Remember, this is the guy through whom the Messiah comes. And he went in and married her, and she conserved and conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. So now we're all of a sudden, you know, 20 or so years further into the future. But Ur, verse 7, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Wow. The Lord decided by looking at this young man's life, man, this is a bad guy. Something polluted him, that this guy was so evil that God decided to take him out. Seal team God to the rescue. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife, fulfill the custom, marry her, raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, but belonging to his brother. So he had evil in his heart. He chose not to follow the custom and to fulfill what his father had asked. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, the Lord took him out also. This is crazy. You might understand once in a while the Lord doing this to someone who is a truly evil person, but two brothers in the same family within a fairly short period of time. And so the Lord took him out. Then Judah said to Tamar, and I would hope by now Judah's sort of getting the message, hey man, God's not with you in this. God's not blessing this relationship. He's not blessing this marriage. You've gone off and done something that's bearing evil fruit and you should repent and turn, but he continues in it. So Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So now she's waiting. We're waiting for Shelah, however old he was, to come to an age that he could become a man and marry and have offspring. Now in the process of time, verse 12, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. And he and his friend, Ahira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying... Look, your father-in-law is going up to Tinma to shear his sheep. So this is kind of like a big deal. They're going up to the sheep shearing. And so she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. Now what's happening here is she's tired of waiting. The child has apparently reached age that he could have been given. And she realizes that it's not going to happen. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. Again, this is the story of this family, isn't it? We're going to help God out. We're going to make it so that we, we make these things happen that should be happening because they're not happening the way we want and in the time frame which we want. 
So she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place. So she dressed herself up like a prostitute, which was on the way to Tenma, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. So Judah's not keeping her prom- his promise, so she's going to make him. And when Judah saw her, remember his wife had just died, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. And then he turned to her, by the way, and said, hey, baby, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? What's the price? Right? That's the way a prostitute operates. So he said, um, I don't know. What pledge shall I give you? And she said, uh, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now, here's the thing. The signet and the cord and the staff, these were all symbols of authority. These were symbols of his identity as a man, the head of a family. And uh, presumably between the signet, which would have most likely been a ring or some kind of medallion, uh, would have been attached to the cord on the staff. And then he, he basically gave away his identity And if we tried to somehow bring this into modern days, if this were some man doing this, it would be like her saying, okay, give me your wallet, and I want your bank debit card, and I want your driver's license, and I want maybe the deed to your car or your house. And then after you have done what you want to do with me, and you go away and get whatever the payment is you're promising to me, when you come back, I'll give you this stuff back. I mean, that's the equivalent of what he's doing here. So in this moment of fleshly desire, in this moment of lust, he says, okay, let's do this thing. And so he went in and uh, she conceived by him. And so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And now she's waiting. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, go back, find that woman and give her the goat and get my stuff back. And when he went back, they couldn't find her. And they said, well, where is she? And they said, well, there is no harlot here. There's no woman who hangs out around here. We don't don't tolerate that kind of thing. There's no no prostitute here. And so he returned to Judah and he says, I don't know. I can't find her. They're, They're saying there is no such person. And so Judah said, well, eh, just she can keep them for herself. It's fine. I'll get another signet ring. I'll get another cord. I'll make a new staff, whatever. So lest we be shamed for this young goat and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months later that Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It's interesting that as Judah did these things, the very judgment that he's rendering upon his daughter-in-law is rendering judgment on himself. He's rendering judgment on the person who did the exact same thing that he did. You see, he's upset with her because she committed harlotry. But he committed harlotry with a harlot. He, in essence, pronounced judgment on himself. And this, I read this, and immediately I said, this is exactly like what King David did. Remember the story of King David? When David went and he took Bathsheba, and he took her husband, and 
He tried to find a way to get rid of this guy, and it wasn't working. He was like, hey, you go in. I brought him back from the front line. You go into your wife, have relations with her, and then she's already pregnant with my child, but everybody will think it's your child, and then I'll be out of a bind. But then he wouldn't because he was an honorable man. And he said, I'm not going to do this. My brother are at the front line fighting. Why should I be home in the lap of luxury laying with my wife? I need to be with my brothers on the front line. Sounds like a Marine, right? You know, the few, the, the proud, the chosen. He wanted to be with his brothers on the front line. And David had enough of it. And he called his general up, take him back to the front line and put him right in the very front in the heat of the battle and take a step back and let him be taken out. And then about a year later, after David had taken the woman into his house. Samuel the prophet comes to him because the Lord has been spoken to him and he says, um, David, I got a story to tell you. He tells him the story about a man with a flock. This man has a rich flock, a big flock. And then he says, he looks across the way and he sees a man and he's only got one sheep, one little ewe lamb. That's it. That's his hope. And he says, the rich man goes over and he takes that one little ewe lamb for himself and he just rips it out of the grip of this one poor man. And David just reacts, gut reaction, and says, ah, that man who stole, he, he should be put to death. I mean, he shouldn't be do something like that. That's terrible. And remember what the prophet said to him? He says, you are that man. And in that moment, that's what happened here to Judah. Because here's what happens. When she was brought out, they're bringing her out. They're going to bring her to judgment. What did she do? She sent to her father-in-law and saying, um... By the man to whom these belong, here's your wallet. Did you lose something along the way? I'm with child. In fact, my child is your child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged and says, she's been more righteous than me. I did not keep my word. I didn't give Sheila, my son, to her. And he never knew her again. And it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first and then he drew his hand back and then his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you, therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. And so we come to the end of these chapters Interesting things happening, right? These things are lessons to us. The New Testament says that these things that happen in the Old Testament have become for us lessons. They have become truth. They have become principles to point us. And you see the story here of Judah and Tamar and everything that happened from this man who was to be the, the head of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one through whom the Messiah would come, this messed up, defiled man. God still has grace in his heart to say, the Messiah will come through you. And you know, when we uh, study the book of Hebrews, and I would encourage you to go back and read Hebrews chapter 11 again, as you read through that chapter, we call it Faith's Hall of Fame. And we read about all these people that God said, this person was faithful, this person was faithful, this person was faithful. And we read about all these people with massive failures in their life, right? Sinful people people who were failures by spiritual definitions, right? They failed morally. They killed people. They committed adultery. They did all these things. They robbed. They stole. They did all these things. And yet God looked at them and he said, 
I see their faith. I see when they turn their heart to me. And from that point forward, I only see the faith that brought them to me. They trusted me. They came to the place where they believed in me. And I think something we ought to take away from that this morning is this. When God looks at you, if you believe in him, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have been saved, such as the scriptures say, when God looks at you, he doesn't see this kind of stuff. And by the way, couldn't the name Judah be the name Dean? Couldn't your name be in there? Couldn't the name um, of his uh, daughter-in-law, couldn't that be your name? I mean, but for the grace of God, there go I. And the Lord is so gracious. He's so merciful. He's so compassionate. And he chooses today, if we are in Christ, if we've believed in our Lord Jesus Christ, that when he looks down from heaven and he sees you and me, first of all, he's got his son sitting at his right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. According to 1 John chapter 2, it says, uh, my little children, if you sin, I want you to know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Lord, our Savior, our, our prophet, our priest, our King, is sitting there as our advocate, our defense attorney at the right hand of God the Father, saying what he said over and over and over. He says, Father, forgive them, for, forgive him, forgive her, because they know not what they do. And the blood of Christ is ever continually over and over and eternally applied to my life and to yours. And God looks at us through the lens of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made as white as wool. This is how God sees us. And we read these stories and we go, wow, what a hypocrite Judah was. What a vile man he was. Look, look at Joseph's brothers. Look at what they did to him. But God would later use Joseph to be the deliverer. And God was just moving the pieces around on his divine chessboard. I got to get Joseph down here and he's got to go through 20 years of stuff to get to the place that at the right time, because God is the Alpha and the Omega, right? He's the beginning and the end. He sees things and he knows what's going on. And he says, I know this is painful, Joseph. I know it's painful, Jacob. You thought your son was dead for 20 years. I know that these boys were evil, but I'm going to use it. Remember, Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him and to those who are the called according to his purpose. We can't see it, can we? We don't understand these things. We look at the things going on in our lives. All of us, right? Virginia and I constantly, constantly look at each other and go, God has given us a daughter for 29 years who is completely disabled and we can't even make sense of that. Things happen in our lives. And we look at it and we say, why, how, what, Lord? And he says, don't worry. I got it under control. Your life is in my hands. Your days are numbered according to my book. And coronavirus or no coronavirus, car accident or no car accident, disease or no disease, your name's written in my book of life. And all the days beforehand that they were adorned by my hand. And then we have Psalm 90, right? Moses writing from a, a position of wisdom. And he says, you know, we may live 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years. 
But may we be able to present to you, God, a heart of wisdom. God takes us through the things we go through for his purposes. You see, it's for our good, but it's for his glory. And we may fail, but God looks at us. If you love him and if you believe in him, even though you fail, I fail all the time. We're we're all failures. But God looks at us and he says, you're my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Stay the course. Fight the fight of faith. Stay, if you fall, if you stumble, repent, get back up on your feet and come back to Christ. If you fall, find a brother or a sister to come alongside you and say, can you help me? Can you pray for me? Can you pray with me? I constantly struggle with this. I fall with that. I, I, I have trouble dealing with these issues in my life. Listen, we are all sinners saved by grace. And I guarantee you, there's nothing that you could come to me with that would shock me partly because of the issues in my own life, but partly because of over the years of just hearing people come. And it's like they come with this brokenness and this shame. And I did this and I did that. And listen, man, God can do it. God can take care of it. God is the only one who can take something that is evil and vile and wretched and horrible and painful and turn it around for good. He's the only one who can do that. And so what we're gonna do is we're going to take you to the throne of grace. We're going to pray for you. We're going to bring scripture to bear upon your life and your situation. And we're going to say, look, hang on to the Lord, cling to God. And let his grace and his love and his mercy wash over you and take care of you and draw you back to him. So this morning, yeah, we've looked at Joseph's dream. We've looked at Judah's character. But really, I think this is all about the sovereign acts of God in our lives, which we don't understand and we don't see because his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are are more divine than our ways. God is orchestrating our lives. You can't do that. I can't do that. Man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The book of Proverbs tells us whatever plans you have and however they have or have not worked out, God is in control. So let's trust a faithful, loving, sovereign God who has our future in his hands. Lord, we love you. We bless you. We thank you. And as we go now, we go with the grace of God. We go with your blessing. We go in faith, Lord, knowing that you love us. Lord, you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And even in the midst of the things right now that we don't understand, I pray that you would bring the peace that surpasses all understanding to bear upon our hearts and our lives. And all God's people said, amen.